Holy Spirit, would you now grant to us hearts that are ready to receive the preached word? Would you help us to feast on Jesus, to see how your ongoing role in our lives amplifies the work that he did on this earth and amplifies our joy in the process? Would you grant us all the things he calls us to by your strength and by your grace? And would we see in greater measure the work of Jesus through us to a lost world? We pray this all in his mighty name. Amen. It is a perilous, dangerous thing to be a Bible-believing Christian that believes every verse in the Bible is true, the very word of God. Every once in a while, you will come across a verse It's not particularly difficult to understand what it's saying, but it is difficult to believe and maybe even more difficult to live out. Think, for example, Matthew 7, Jesus tells you not to be anxious about today. The more you think about not being anxious, the more anxious you might become. Difficult to live out, not difficult to understand. Or Romans 8 God's working all things for the good of those who he loves, called according to his purpose. That's not difficult to wrap your head around, and yet in the midst of a hard thing or a trial, that is a a hard thing to believe and live out. Or about children. It's got to be Ephesians 6.1, right? Children, you must obey your parents. I don't know if that one's true or not, kids, right? (laughs) Lots of things in the Bible, if you are committed to reading your Bible and saying, this is the word of the Lord, you're going to run across verses that sometimes you have to say, how in the world do I believe that? I think one of those is John 16, verse 7. Jesus, speaking to his disciples, says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. That would have been a hard thing for disciples that had spent a couple years walking and talking with Jesus, loving him and being loved by him to hear and believe. Jesus is going away, and that's going to be better than him staying here? 2,000 years later, I wonder if we maybe understand a little more of what he's saying, a little more clearly, and yet have just as much trouble believing it. It's better that Jesus is in heaven and not on earth What about when it comes to my quiet time? Wouldn't it be better if Jesus were in the recliner right next to me, explaining what God's word meant to me? Or what about lunch after church? Wouldn't it be better to debrief with Jesus all the things that I'm supposed to put into practice? Or what about when I'm going to talk with my next door neighbor that I know is not a Christian? Surely I'd be more effective as a witness if I had Jesus right there next to me. Maybe you know where this is going because you know this passage well. It's a beloved passage because it shows us why it is actually to our advantage that Jesus is in heaven and not on earth. It's because of the role of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who indwells believers, that empowers believers, and unleashes believers to do the very work that Jesus did on this earth means that even though Jesus is up in heaven, His work continues on this earth, and indeed it is amplified by the very Spirit of God. That's what we'll see this morning. 
that we should find gratitude, even joy in the work the Spirit of God does to continue the work of Jesus on this earth, even amplifying it through us. We'll see that in three sections. There are three roles that the Spirit has in this world. The first in verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 26 through 16, 4, it's the Spirit's role to witness. Spirit's role to witness. The second is in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 16. It's the Spirit's role to convict. The Spirit's role to convict. And then finally in verses 11 through 15 of chapter 16, it's the Spirit's role to reveal. The Spirit's role to reveal. And all this we'll see, it truly is better that Jesus is in heaven and not on earth because he left us his Holy Spirit to continue the work. Let's begin in uh, uh, chapter 15, verse 26. First, the Spirit's role to witness. It's been a few weeks since we were in John's gospel, so it's good to do a little recap. You might remember Jesus was coming to the end of his ministry with the disciples. They've been in this upper room, and they've been having this final conversation, and Jesus has been preparing them for what life without him is going to be like. He's been fortifying their hearts so they wouldn't lose heart at what's about to come because what's coming is going to be hard. The last section back in chapter 15 that we looked at, Jesus said plainly that they should expect hatred from the world because the world hated their master, Jesus. But in order to keep them from losing heart and giving up, he's given them a series of reasons that they can press on until he returns. He's going to remain with them dwelling with them by his very spirit. In fact, the, the whole trinity will come and inhabit them. They will be empowered to be his witnesses. They, they'll have very words put in their mouths at the moment they need them. Now he turns his attention specifically to the way that the spirit is going to continue and amplify the work that Jesus was doing on earth. Look at verse 26. But when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. This is a packed verse. The, the basic idea is easy enough. Reinforcements are coming. Even though I am leaving you, I'm sending the Holy Spirit. Now it's a, more depthy than that. And, and one of the most theologically rich verses in the whole Bible, Jesus reveals that this Spirit that is being sent is both sent by the Son and proceeds from the Father. There have been theological tomes upon tomes written to explain how this works. It's enough for us to say this morning that the Spirit is fully God, the third person of the Trinity, that he is being sent in a new way to do a work, to pick up the work of Jesus and to amplify it even further. His role, the main idea, is that he will bear witness about me. That is, the, the Spirit has this role of pointing people to Jesus, or you might say amplifying how many people encounter Jesus. Now, if you think about that idea of amplification, back before there were microphones like the one hanging off my face, uh, preachers had a bit of a harder job. They had to make sure everyone could actually hear them. They would use sometimes something called a sounding board. It was just a board that would stand behind them that would make the sound waves go forward instead of backward. Um, some men were particularly gifted. The great evangelist George Whitfield had such a booming voice 
that under the right conditions, it was said that he could have over 20,000 people hear him speak. Now, that's incredible. I'm frankly more than a little bit jealous. But given that I have asthma, I'm glad for amplification. It's a good thing. The Spirit makes it so that many, many more people are confronted with Jesus and the claims about Jesus. Think about Jesus in his earthly life. How many people encountered Jesus and had to make a decision about him? Hundreds, certainly, thousands. But consider how many billions of people there are in the world today and how many more billions there would be each generation going back 2,000 years. Consider the way the Spirit amplifies the message and witness of Jesus through, of all things, us Christians. Look at the next verse, verse 27. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. The Spirit's instrument in bearing witness are the disciples. Now, first and foremost, this is to the original disciples. But insofar as they have recorded the thing that Jesus gave them to record, which we'll get to later, and pass that down, and we believe the same gospel and carry forward the same message, we too are witnesses to Jesus in this same way. The Spirit turns the dial up on the message of Jesus so that the whole world can hear it. And he does it through Christians. He amps up the witness of Jesus, but notice in verses one through four of chapter 16, that as the witness gets amped up, so does the hatred against the disciples. So I said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I have told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. While Jesus was on earth, even when he sent his disciples out, Jesus bore the brunt of the hatred toward him. The Pharisees and the religious leaders and those opposed to God, they hated Jesus and they persecuted Jesus and only tangentially did his disciples receive that persecution. But think what happens once Jesus goes up to heaven. Think of the way the witness of the church spreads and think of what happens right after that. The persecution breaks out. As the message of Jesus continues and amplifies, so does the opposition to it through persecution. And that's been the case through the book of Acts. You can think of the apostle Paul. He sees the Christians having an effect and winning people to Christ, and he does everything he can even to kill them, and he thinks he's actually doing it in God's name. Now that's continued on to today. There are more Christians around the world than there have ever been, more people coming to Christ than in any era in history. You look at places like Africa and South America, even closed countries like Iran, there are believers coming to Jesus in thousands. And with that conversion to Christ comes amped up persecution. All of this is to remind us that Jesus isn't done acting in this world. Jesus' mission is being carried on by his spirit amplified through his church. Now, all of this means that students, 
realize that when you feel like, you know, I just wish my life was a part of something bigger. Do you realize how huge the thing you are a part of when you tell someone about Jesus? I mean, it may seem awkward and it's religion, they're not interested in it. It, it may just make, make you feel like you're going to lose friends doing this, but you are a part of a movement that goes back 2,000 years. It's actually empowered by the very Spirit of God. What more cause could you ever want to be a part of than sharing Jesus with your fellow students? Realize also the way the Spirit does this witnessing. It, it happens in all sorts of arenas of life. Don't discount the ministry that's being done right here in our church, right below our feet. Think of the most fertile mission fields throughout history. Inside the church, children that don't yet know Jesus, that are faithfully witnessed to by Sunday school teachers and mentors and other Christians that make sure that the message of Jesus reaches those young ears. We as a church need to realize that Spirit is the one doing the witnessing to the world, and he uses us as instruments. But that leaves some pretty important questions. Okay, if the, the Spirit is doing this witnessing to the world, how does he actually do it? What, what does it actually look like? That brings us to the second role the Spirit has, continuing the work of Jesus in this world. It's his role to convict. Talk is cheap, so the Spirit gets down into the heart to convict, verses 5 through 11. Now, it almost seems like Jesus has forgotten what his disciples have been uh, talking with him about earlier, verse 5. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? Um, it could be, you think, oh, well, maybe Jesus had a little slip up here. Back in chapter 14, Thomas asked Jesus, where are you going, very directly. And then in chapter 13, Peter asks the same question, essentially, where are you going, Jesus? We don't know where you're going. So... Did Jesus just have a slip up here? Or, or did John, in recording this, did he make a mistake? I don't think either of those are the case. I think this is a case where Jesus is calling out the self-interest of his disciples. Uh, you see, Jesus has been talking a lot to his disciples about how his time with him is winding down. He's about to go to the cross. And then he's going to rise from the dead and ascend up into heaven. And even as he's been telling them of this glorious reality, what's going to happen, his disciples, frankly have been worried about themselves. They've been worried about, number one, not really worried about Jesus. They've been asking, where are you going? The same sort of way that my son uh, does a cute little guilt trip every time I'm walking out the door. Theo is two years old. If he sees me putting on my shoes and getting my backpack, he goes, where's daddy going to go? Where's daddy going to go? Now, Theo's not interested and what meeting I'm going to, or if I'm going to Home Depot, or if I'm going to go sign some important papers. He's not interested in that. Theo just doesn't want Daddy to leave the house. And so he's playing the cutest possible guilt trip he can to try and get Daddy to keep from leaving. It's the same sort of question the disciples have been asking. You know, Where are you going to go, Jesus? Oh, you don't really want to leave us, do you? They can't imagine life without the Savior. But not because they can't imagine the glory of him at the right hand of the Father. Not because they can't imagine the worldwide glory of thousands and thousands and millions of people worshiping Jesus. No, they can't imagine it because they're so focused on themselves in this moment. So Jesus meets them where they are. Look at how he addresses them based on their felt need, verse 6. 
But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. He knows that their heart is troubled in this moment. So he gives them a reason that they are to see this is actually for their benefit. The verse we started the sermon with, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus tells them, if you can't get behind the motivation of my glory, of my infinite delight with my heavenly father, to my glorification in front of the entire world, if you can't get behind that, at least get behind this. It'll actually be better for you when I am in heaven because I will spend, send the Holy Spirit to you. And this is where he gets to the role of the Holy Spirit to work on the hearts of those in sinful, rebellious opposition to God. Verses 9 through 11, uh, 8 through 11, the, the Spirit brings an amped sense of conviction to the human heart. Verse 8 functions as kind of a summary statement for 9, 10, and 11. Verse 8, and when he comes, the Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So the Spirit will do this work of convicting on three fronts, sin, righteousness, and good judgment. And the next three verses tease out what those three things are, sin, righteousness, and judgment. First though, what does it mean that the Spirit will convict the world? Now convict sounds like a judgment word, like the sort of thing a prosecuting attorney would do, establish a case to bring a conviction in a case. So it's, some people think that it's talking about the Spirit uh, bearing witness on the final day of judgment against sinners. I don't think that's the case. Jesus has already said that anyone that rejects the Son stands condemned already. I don't think we need uh, the Spirit to pile up the uh, <coughs> guilt in that way. I think it's better to understand conviction more in the way that we evangelical Christians in the modern way tend to use that word where we say someone is feeling the conviction upon their heart. That is, there's a sense of guilt, a sense of the weight of our own lack of holiness compared to God's perfect holiness, a sense of doom, even of dread of one day coming before the perfect seat of judgment and giving a, an account for every single action in our lives. What Jesus describes here is the Spirit's role to confront the world with its desperate plight and the guilt that the world feels as a result. All of this is designed to bring the world to repentance. You can think of how this plays out through the book of Acts. In Acts 2, after the spirits come and transform these disciples that were locked away and fearful into this powerful witnessing force, remember what it said in verse 37? Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is a glimmer of what the conviction of the Spirit looks like. It cuts us to the heart and makes us realize we're not right with God to lead us to the only one that can make us right with God, Jesus Christ. 
We'll look briefly at each of these three ways that the Spirit accomplishes this conviction. The first, he convicts in regards to sin in verse 9. In in regards to sin, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. See, the world would never believe in Jesus. Our hearts are bent the wrong way, left on our own. We always go away from the righteousness that is Jesus. We'll always have an excuse. We'll always have a justification. Our hearts love the darkness, not the light. So the Holy Spirit has to do a work to confront us about the state of our hearts and our sin for any of us to repent of our sin. The second way that he will convict the world is in regard to righteousness. In verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. The best way to understand this is you could put scare quotes around righteousness there. It's a supposed sort of righteousness. It's the type of righteousness the Pharisees have as they do for show religious things to show how good they are. And yet in God's sight, to use the words from the prophets, our righteousness is like filthy rags. There's only one righteousness that's truly righteousness, and that is the righteousness of our God in Jesus Christ. The Spirit reveals the gap between true God-like righteousness and all the good things we think make us good people, which are actually shot through with sin. This is the Spirit reminding us that our, at our most caring, most giving, most loving moments, we're still self-centered. At the moments where we feel as if we are most spiritual and most in tune with God, we're still disconnected from Him. That every single action of ours, yes, even our best moments, is something to be repented of. He convicts the world about its righteousness. Then finally, he convicts it regarding judgment. Verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Jesus looks forward to what will occur on the cross when the God of this world, the devil, will be proved once for all to be defeated and to be judged. At the cross, Jesus broke the power of the devil. At the cross, he guaranteed that the devil and all who are under his influence and sway will will one day face God's judgment. And therefore, at the cross, a sense of doom is now hanging over this world that goes on to this very day. It's as if the Holy Spirit has revealed that this world is on borrowed time, And he helps us to hear the seconds ticking down. That sense that we're not right with God, that sense that at any moment the end could come and we would be brought before the judgment seat to give an account, that is the the Spirit's work within us, convicting us to lead us to Christ. You know how this works out in your own life, if you're a Christian, at some point you felt the conviction of the Spirit and it led you to Jesus. In the life of one of the most prolific evangelists of our time, Dr. G. James Kennedy, the founder of Evangelism Explosion, this happened through listening to a radio broadcast. Uh, He had been reading an evangelistic book 
And it just so happened that night, he turned on a, a radio preacher, and he was about ready to turn it off when something pricked him. It was just a one little question. It was, if you were to die tonight and go before God and you were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? That question floored him. He couldn't get it out of his head. He, he turned off the radio and he thought about it. He thought about it. And the more he thought about it, the more he realized he needed an answer to that question. That night he gave his life to Jesus and that conviction that the Spirit pressed upon him that drove him to his knees, it drove him straight into the arms of the only Savior for any sinner. See, brothers and sisters, there can be no good news without the bad news. There can be no joy and salvation without the sorrow and brokenness over our sin. The true gospel has both. It has a, a spirit within us telling us that we are not right with God and that same spirit guiding us to the only place we can find the way to fix that relationship with God at the feet of Jesus Christ. The spirit does this work by breaking stony hearts and friends, sometimes it hurts. It hurts. But it's for our good because it leads us to the only place where we can find lasting joy and peace to relationship with Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, maybe this is exactly the reason why you don't like coming to church. You know that there can be times where you're going to feel bad about yourself. You're going to think about all the things you did wrong and the ways that you should be better and about God and judgment. It's just something you'd rather not think about. Maybe even this morning you are feeling that sense of the clock ticking down on your life. And you're wondering, what am I going to find on the other side of my life? What will I say to God when he asks me, why should I let you into my heaven? Friend, if that's you, don't ignore that, that press on your heart. Let it lead you to Jesus. That's what it's there for. It's meant to lead you like a trail of breadcrumbs to the only one that can give you lasting spiritual life, Jesus. All of us are sinners. All of us have fallen short of God's glory. And all of us on our own would find that day of judgment to be the worst of all days. We'd find nothing from God but everlasting punishment. If not for Jesus, he came to pay the penalty for sinners like you and me. He came to take away the guilt that maybe you're feeling at this moment. If you'll turn from your sin and trust him, friend, you will find what Christians have talked about for thousands of years now. The clean conscience and the joy that comes from knowing you're right from, with God through Jesus. The Spirit, he convicts the world. He leads us to Jesus through this conviction but that's not the only thing that he does as he amps up the work of Jesus in this world. He also has a positive work to do. One that goes on and is particularly sweet for us as believers. And that's his third and final role we see. Verses 11 through 15. The Spirit's role to reveal. The Spirit's role to reveal. Verse 11, we see that Jesus has been using a progression of sorts. Sorry, verse 12, a progression of sorts for the disciples. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, 
he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears and speaks, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Jesus tells the disciples, there's some things you're not ready for yet. Oh, we understand this from our own education, don't we? Uh, there's a progression to certain classes you take, even in middle school and high school and college. You don't jump right into Spanish 3. You start with Spanish 1. Some of us get the joy and privilege of taking Spanish 1 multiple times along the way. Don't worry, it gets better every time you take it. Certain concepts build on each other. You're just not ready to hear them at a certain point. Certainly that's true intellectually when it comes to books. It's definitely true spiritually. The disciples have learned so, so much from Jesus. He's been a wonderful teacher. And yet there are some things they are not ready for. Some things that they won't be able to understand until they see him hanging on the cross. Until they glimpse him come out from that empty tomb till they witness him ascend back up into the glory of heaven. Until that day, they are not yet ready to hear everything they need to know. So Jesus is intentionally held back. So you might wonder, what about all those details they need? What about all the things they don't yet understand? And the good news is, Jesus is continuing, even amplifying his work. Through the Spirit, he will finish the task of revealing God and leading them into the truth of God. There's three ways it's said in this section. The first, Jesus says that they will have the same message completed to them. Notice how there's three times in these verses that Jesus uses the phrase, declare to you what the Spirit will do. See it there in verse 13. He will declare, declare to you the things to come. The end of 14. And he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And verse 15. I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. As Jesus was a teacher and a preacher, the Spirit will continue that role, teaching and preaching now in the hearts of believers. He will do this, his summary statement in verse 13, he will lead you or guide you into all truth. Now, it's really important to know what realm Jesus is talking about here. It certainly is true that the Holy Spirit teaches us things and illumines our heart and our minds so we can understand the truths in Scripture. And yet this was written originally to the original disciples, the ones who had to write down the things we now have in the Bible. Primarily, then, this, is, this truth that the Spirit is leading them into is the truth of the Bible. Jesus makes that link just uh, the next chapter in John 17, 17. He's talking to the Father in a, his high priestly prayer. He says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. See, the, the Spirit does not bring a different message than Jesus, as if Jesus got ran out of airtime, so the Spirit's going to come and inject his message in here. No, the Spirit continues the same message that Jesus had. He gave the details and filled in with all the glory the thing that we now come to know as the inspired scriptures. Uh, notice also that the Spirit shares the same authority. That's the second thing we see here in 13 and 15. The Spirit doesn't just make this stuff up. He takes what is from Jesus, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears 
he will speak, down in verse 15, all that the Father has is mine, and therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. If you remember back, Jesus has often spoken of his relationship with his Father, that he only speaks the words the Father puts in his mouth to speak, that he's always in the same mind and same heart as his heavenly Father, this work of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, is, it's finished off here. All three of them are involved bringing this revelation of Jesus to exactly where it's supposed to be, to the place where disciples of Jesus can know Jesus and come to faith in him. There's a third thing that he says about the revealing of the Spirit is that it's all for the same goal. That's in verse 14. The Spirit will glorify Jesus. He will glorify me. The whole reason Jesus came to this earth was to make God known through the person of Jesus Christ, to show the way of salvation and to bring glory to himself and thereby glorifying his Father. The Holy Spirit will continue that work. He will draw all eyes to Jesus and give all the glory to Jesus. See, within the Trinity, there's nothing like what we see on our political stages where there's jockeying for the microphone. Who will get the attention? Who will get the glory? No, there is unity and the diversity of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit, all working in one accord to glorify God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus tells his disciples all of this so that they will know that they will have exactly from him what they need even once he's gone that his work on this world will not be done. In fact, it will be amplified by his spirit through his disciples. Now, there's a lot we can draw from this. One of the most basic places we can go is if the, the Bible is the result of this revelation of the spirit through Jesus Christ, then we should treasure God's word. We should treasure it. And whenever we have an opportunity to come and feast upon it, we should be most delighted of all in our spirits. So, you know, before we preach any sermon, we read the scripture here at Castleton. We have this rhythm where the person who reads the scripture says, this is the word of the Lord. And then you respond back, thanks be to God. That's a way of reminding ourselves of this truth. That the spirit is at work amongst us. That the, the Bible he left us, still is here to lead us to Jesus and unleash the joy that is ours in him. Realize also, this is the case of when you study your word, the word on your own. You may wish Jesus was with you, sitting in the recliner next to you in your morning devotions, but you're not alone. The Spirit is there with you. And whether you sense it or not, any spiritual truth that you come to know that is the Spirit's gift inside you. That is him finishing the work to reveal Jesus to you in greater measure throughout your life. Realize also that all of this, the role of the Spirit, means that we as believers need to be bold in our witness for Christ. If the Spirit is doing this work of witnessing, he, he's revealing Jesus to people, then we should have every expectation that when we stand up and say, you need to know Jesus, let me tell you about what he did for me, that there will be some that will respond in repentance and faith. 
Uh, you may be beaten down from being rejected. Maybe you're in a dry spell where you, every time you try to talk with someone about Jesus, it feels like you get nothing but aggravation and scorn for it. And yet, friends, if the Spirit is at work the way Jesus says he's at work here, we, we need to remain bold and optimistic that we will see the Spirit do what he says he will do, even more effectively than if Jesus were physically here on this earth with us today. Realize also that we need to remain humble in our witness. If the Spirit is the one that brings conviction on hearts, if the Spirit's the one that brings the understanding that leads to salvation, then it's not about our skill. It's not about even our personality. It's about us being a faithful instrument in his hands, being the channel which this grace of God comes down into people's hearts through. If you see someone come to Christ, praise God, all the glories to Jesus Christ that was done by his spirit doing his work on this earth. I hope this leads all of us into a greater understanding of the vibrant, loving, joy-filled relationship we have with Jesus right here and right now. Brothers and sisters, remember you are not alone in this world. Even if you're asked to go through some sort of persecution or trial, even over this last week, if fasting didn't go well for you and you feel like a total spiritual failure, if what Jesus says is true, then you have a companion in the Holy Spirit. He is at work in your life. He is applying the work of Christ in your life. And the more you believe that, the more you try to live in reality of that, the more joy you will have in that. This week was a sweet one for many reasons. Our prayer and fasting was delightful for us to get to do that together. If you, if you didn't make it, don't feel bad. I, there's, there'll be more opportunities for us to do things like that together. I've heard from some of you ways that you have seen God at work in your life. You've seen the Holy Spirit moving, witnessing through you, bringing the truth of Jesus into your heart. I had one of those situations happen to me. I, I felt just a, an urging to call somebody. I was calling for one reason, and as they picked up the phone, they, the first words out of their mouth were, what made you think now is the time to call? You have no idea how much I need you to pray with me right now. You know, that is not an accident. That is the Spirit of God carrying forth the work of Jesus among us. And brothers and sisters, even when it doesn't feel like it, it's better that he's in heaven because the Spirit is here with us down on earth. So brothers and sisters, don't lose heart. There is real joy to be had in this vibrant relationship with Jesus through his spirit. And if there's one thing that the spirit loves to use to unleash our joy and remind us of all we have in Jesus, it's the central point of the Bible that he inspired, the very pinnacle of God's word, it's the gospel of Jesus. That our savior that he would love us so that he would come down from his throne in heaven, that he would live a perfect life as a substitute for sinners like you and me, that he would let himself be killed on a cross, 
that he would let his body be torn and his blood flow out. That his very life would be given in exchange for undeserving rebels. And that he would rise to new life and bring us with him. That he would give us his spirit to remake us from the inside out. And he gives us the Lord's table to remind us of that and the many more blessings that we have together until the day he comes back. Brothers and sisters, don't lose heart. Jesus is with you by his spirit. Let's pray.